Welcome to the Ordinary Extraordinary Cemetery, where every death had a life and every life had a story. My name is Jenny Johnson. Hello, and I am Diane Hartshorn. Diane, how has your spring been going? We're starting to jump into spring. So far, so good. It's like with this beautiful warm weather we're having, it's like I'm looking and I'm planning and it's like where I'm going to plant stuff. And of course, it's supposed to supposed to get like 14 inches of snow this weekend, but you know, what the heck? I know, but I've been outside. It's been like 60 degrees. I know. Last couple of days. Actually, it was almost 70 degrees here today. And so I I wore short sleeves during the day. Like I didn't have a sweater on until it got dark. And then I had to put one on. Um, I know I'm doing the same thing. I'm like, what can we do at the backyard? We've only been in our house for a little over a year. So the backyard still needs a lot of work. And last summer, our big focus was trying to just get grass to grow back there. But there's a lot of like little areas where I want to plant all kinds of things. And mm-hmm. I don't know. I want to make a really cool little garden back there. And this weather makes me want to go out and do that. <laughs> I know. Because last year with, you know, so much free time with COVID, um, <laughs> I was able to, you know, um, plant and nurture a pollinator garden. And so this year I'm expanding that. How cool. Because so, I've, I've been collecting seeds for like, years and finally was able to and it was neat it was really neat seeing the butterflies that showed up the different birds the different bees it was really cool see that's part of what I want to do in our backyard it's big enough that I I would love to have that going on back or have all that stuff to watch when the weather's gorgeous I'm so jealous that's so cool I was grateful last weekend was nice I did get out to some cemeteries so that was good So on Sunday, I did not get anywhere on Saturday, but on Sunday, I mean, I think, to get I, yeah, I think I saw some of your adventures on Facebook. Yeah. I decided to travel a little further East than I have been. So I went all the way out to Lyman and saw their cemetery. And wow. then I went to another one just East of Lyman. It's not in any town. It's in the, literally in the middle of a, a, a pasture. Oh, so wow. I had to take a weird little dirt path to get to it that I didn't think was an actual road. And as I turned onto it, I was like, I don't know if I'm driving across somebody's private property at this point, but I kind of had an idea where the cemetery was supposed to be. Google maps was no help because it took you in the wrong direction. So I managed to find it. I don't think I drove across anybody's private property. At least nobody came after me. So yeah, it was a great little find. I was glad I did it. Oh, cool. Today, I thought we would stay local in Colorado this time. So today's episode, I thought we would visit a cemetery that is close to home for both you and I, and that is Riverside Cemetery that's right here in Denver. Oh, it is such an excellent choice. Riverside Cemetery is a favorite of Denver area taphophiles, and there are tons of ordinary, extraordinary stories buried there. Exactly. Obviously, and we were just talking about this before we started recording, we can't share all the stories in one episode but we will be revisiting them from time to time because there aren't a lot of really great stories there. Oh yeah. The history there is incredible. Mm -hmm. Before we talk about Riverside, we have to talk about Denver's first cemetery. The first cemetery was a 320 acre parcel of land that was officially named Mount Prospect Cemetery in 1859, but was generally referred to by locals as Boot Hill or the Boneyard. It is now known in Denver as Cheeseman Park. It was not a pretty location at the time. There were no planned pathways, no trees and flowers. It was simply a place where the dead were buried. 
According to Annette Student, author of the book, Denver's Riverside Cemetery, Where History Lies. In 1873, Mount Prospect was officially renamed City Cemetery and the city of Denver divided up the cemetery land, allocating 80 acres to City Cemetery, 40 acres to Mount Calvary Catholic Cemetery and 10 acres to Hebrew Cemetery. The remainder of the cemetery land was purchased by various fraternal groups and lodges to be used for burial of their members. By 1874, the citizens of Denver had become appalled by the conditions at City Cemetery and no longer wanted it to be the final resting place for their loved ones. One prominent citizen, Dr. John Morrison, decided it was time to organize a new cemetery. On March 24, 1876, in the law offices of Mitchell Benedict and A.C. Phelps, a meeting consisting of 12 members of Denver's business community was held and this led to the incorporation of Riverside Cemetery Association as a private corporation on April 1st, 1876. It was decided that Riverside Cemetery would be established as a garden or park cemetery and would be modeled after Boston's Mount Auburn Cemetery. Dr. John Morrison agreed to sell his original homestead property that ran along the South Platte River to the Cemetery Association for $20,000. In this way, the cemetery now owned 160 acres of land, which also included an old house. By 1890, an additional 80 acres had been purchased. Harvey C. Lowry, a landscape and civil engineer, was hired to survey and design the layout of Riverside Cemetery. On May 19, 1876, an article in the Rocky Mountain News stated that a contract was also issued for an underground receiving vault which was greatly needed because the city burial ground vault was almost useless in hot weather. The whitewashed, half-timbered and brick Tudor-style receiving vault with a holding capacity of 20 bodies was completed by July 3rd. A second vault was constructed a few years later, but the official date of that construction has been lost. The second vault also served as an office until the new building was built in 1904. The first three burials took place before the grounds were officially laid out. The very first burial was that of Henry H. Walton on June 1, 1876. His death happened exactly two months to the day before Colorado was officially made a state on August 1, 1876. On July 22nd of that year, Dr. John Morrison became the fifth burial in Riverside Cemetery. If you remember, it was Dr. Morrison who began the movement to have Riverside formed. Sadly, he did not live long enough to see the cemetery in its full glory. In 1890, City Cemetery was officially closed due to its unsanitary conditions. Friends and family members of those buried there were given 90 days to have the bodies removed to other cemeteries, including Riverside. Undertaker E.P. McGovern was hired by the city of Denver in 1893 to remove the remaining bodies from City Cemetery at $1.90 per coffin, starting with those buried in the paupers section. The bodies were taken to Riverside Cemetery for reburial. McGovern had a number of small coffins constructed and then divided up the remains of one grave into more than one coffin. The city fired him when they discovered what he was doing. Denver converted City Cemetery into Congress Park, which is today's Cheeseman Park, without removing the remaining bodies. So technically, Cheeseman is still a cemetery. Exactly. Riverside is a non-sectarian cemetery 
with no restrictions on where ethnic, religious, or other groups can be buried. However, over time, various organizations and religious groups purchase a series of lots together, creating groups within the cemetery. Some of these groups include Denver's Japanese community, German immigrants, Serbian and Croatian immigrants, a congregation Emmanuel section, a Catholic section, and a Russian Orthodox section. There are also several fraternal organizations in the cemetery, including the Independent Order of Oddfellows and the Elks. There are also special sections for the Denver Orphans Home, the Old Ladies Home, Denver's Typographical Union Number 49, Denver Tramway Company employees, and the Henry and Boltoff Mutual Benefit Association. The military cemetery, the Grand Army of the Republic, was for Union Civil War veterans, and that was established in 1887 in the largest section set aside for burials for a special group of people. Riverside monuments tend to be headstones or statues, but there are three private family mausoleums. They are all located side by side in Block 16, and they face the South Platte River in the Rocky Mountains. One of the most prominent monuments in the cemetery is the Addison Baker Monument. This is a white, life-size horse on top of a six-foot pedestal. There is also a sandstone replica of Lester Drake's Black Hawk Cabin, and a granite monument topped with a 10-foot bronze statue of Colonel James Archer. Because of so many Christian denominations in this cemetery, you will find a plethora of different styles of crosses. There are also many angels, weepers, goddesses, urns, and obelisks. Riverside is full of Victorian-era symbolism. A very important topic for Riverside Cemetery is its water rights. A booklet printed by the Riverside Cemetery Association in 1878 stated that the association owned and controlled its own water system. Water to irrigate the cemetery was obtained from wells dug in the river bottom just under the bluffs along the Platte River. 2,000 feet of water pipe had been laid throughout the grounds, which would be extended as the need arose and a thousand trees that had been planted on the ground were flourishing. According to Annette L. Student, discussions were held at many meetings and a lot of investigations were conducted to find ways of obtaining an adequate water supply for Riverside Cemetery. A Rocky Mountain News article on March 29, 1879 stated that the cemetery had been dealing with an insufficient supply of water, but the problem was resolved and there would be an abundant supply of water into the future. The article also stated that a 16,000 gallon holding tank was emptied twice daily to irrigate the cemetery grounds during the summer. The association acquired water rights to irrigate the cemetery from the Reithman Ditch Company in November of 1879. Can you just picture that cemetery with over a thousand trees? Oh my gosh. How gorgeous it would have been. It, yeah, it must have just been so beautiful. It had to have been because, I mean, ever since I've known it, there's been hardly any trees right. in it. And the few that are there are very scraggly. But just to picture that thousand trees all over. Oy. Again, I am quoting directly from Annette L. Student's book, a, a Denver's Riverside Cemetery, Where History Lies. Riverside Cemetery lost its 1879 water rights in 1981 after a state employee discovered a discrepancy in court documents, which revealed that legal water rights to the South Platte River 
that were claimed by the cemetery and by Marion Elliott, his wife, and his cousins, Joe and Jean Amato, and James and Joe Spano, who owned and operated three florist and nursery businesses near the cemetery, and a woman who owned farmland nearby. Fairmount Cemetery Company, who now owns Riverside Cemetery, filed a lawsuit to confirm its legal water rights to the South Platte. Brighton District Court and the Colorado Court of Appeals ruled that the water rights used by Riverside for more than 100 years really belong to the Elliots, their cousins, and the woman who owned the farmland. The company took the case to the Colorado Supreme Court, which upheld the lower court rulings. According to Frank Hinger, the former president of Fairmount Cemetery, the company's board of directors failed to file a report renewing the water rights, which ultimately resulted in Riverside Cemetery losing its water rights. The loss of those rights means that instead of purchasing water at a flat rate, the cemetery must purchase it at the going rate, which is constantly increasing. And I know from people who are local, who've been there, especially people who just visit for the first time or whatever, that always comes up. Why is there no water here? Yeah. That's why, sadly. Yeah, very. Yeah, definitely. It's very sad. If you visit Riverside today, you will see it is not the thriving garden cemetery it was designed to be. Most of the trees have died and have been cut down. The grass is dry and sparse under your feet. Cacti have taken over in many areas and the grounds are flat and hard. However, the many monuments that were raised in Victorian era Denver still stand as a tribute to the people who founded this community. While the garden aspect is no more, it is still a fascinating cemetery to walk through and photograph. As we said at the beginning of the episode, there are many ordinary, extraordinary stories buried in Riverside Cemetery. I wanted to start by sharing the story of Addison Baker, since his monument is my very favorite in the cemetery. The Baker Monument is topped by a huge white horse, and it is said to have been erected in memory of Addison Baker by his family because of his love of horses, which he raised. Addison Baker was born on March 24, 1818 in Rochester, New York. When old enough to marry, he married a woman named Charlotte Baker, and while they shared the same last name, there was no relation. In 1849, the Baker family moved to Racine, Wisconsin, where they lived until 1857. For the next three years, they traveled from Chicago to St. Louis and finally to Omaha, Nebraska. They left Omaha in February of 1860 and headed for Colorado, arriving in Denver on March 20th of that year. Once in Denver, Baker set up a 160-acre farm and raised some of the finest stock in the area. Eventually, age and poor health made it necessary for his son, Nathan, to take over the actual farm duties. However, Addison Baker did not allow his failing body to get in his way of investing in large amounts of Denver's real estate before it boomed. Located on Baker's land was a medicinal spring that was used as a watering place for early Colorado explorers. John Fremont and Kit Carson. Later known as Baker Springs, it served as Denver's first freshwater supply, which Baker delivered in barrels to Denver homes. Baker was a member of the Society of Colorado Pioneers. He died on January 20th, 1884 at the age of 66. His monument was built by sculptor J.A. Byrne, and many will tell you that it is carved out of Italian marble but it is actually sandstone. According to Addison's granddaughter, Lily Seven, the horse is a life-size replica of her grandfather's Arabian stallion named Ali, but Byrne claimed to use another horse as a model. 
The statue is unusual because the horse has no saddle, trappings, or rider, and is the only one of its kind in a U.S. cemetery. According to the Riverside Cemetery tour book, a 10-foot-high granite monument topped with a life-size bronze replica of Colonel James Archer marks his final resting place. One of Denver's forceful, enterprising, highly respected, and valued citizens, Archer was born outside Belfast, Ireland in 1824. He married his first wife at the age of 21 in 1843. They came to America two years later and settled in St. Louis, Missouri, where Archer worked as a clerk in the Hamill Brothers grocery store. He became a partner in the company before resigning at the beginning of the Civil War. Archer started a business providing the government with supply wagons and harnesses. The business grew as the work continued, and Colonel Archer became a wealthy man. When the war ended, Colonel Archer and his wife visited Europe and Ireland. Unfortunately, his wife died in 1866 while they were in Ireland. She was buried there next to Irish ancestors. The couple had four children, Rebecca, James, and twins, Frank and Esther. Colonel Archer returned to St. Louis, where he became a director of the Kansas Pacific Railroad. Kansas Pacific had received a land grant from Congress, but the acquisition of additional land was required in order for the Kansas Pacific to complete the railroad to Denver. Its plan terminus. The Kansas Pacific, which is in desperate financial straits, also needed capital. Colonel Archer arrived in Denver on November 14, 1867, as a representative of the railroad. He informed Denver citizens about the railroad's financial difficulties and that a $2 million subsidy was needed to complete the railroad to Denver. The citizens, who were surprised by the information, did not agree to help the financially strapped railroad. In January of 1868, Kansas Pacific once again sent a representative to Denver seeking funds, and once again, Denver told them to find the funds elsewhere. In March of 1869, Congress provided a land grant to the Kansas Pacific for the additional land that was required to complete the railroad to Denver. The company also received a foreign loan in the amount of $6.5 million. Kansas Pacific's first passenger train from Kansas City to Denver arrived on August 15, 1870. Denver had become Colonel Archer's home by November 1, 1869, when he proposed the construction of a gas works. He organized the Denver Gas Works on November 13 and started laying gas pipes on September 20, 1870. On January 22, 1871, he was ready to supply the city with gas street lights and private homes with gas lighting. For several years, the maximum price charged to supply gas to private citizens was $5 for 1,000 square feet. At the same time Colonel Archer was working on supplying Denver with gas, he also proposed a general waterworks system. He organized the Denver City Water Company on October 30, 1870. Colonel Archer was made president of the company, a position he held until his death. In the summer of 1871, construction began on a Holly Direct pressure system using steam power to distribute water from Lake Archer, a reservoir along the Platte River, through three to four miles of street mains. Up to January 10, 1872, when the system was completed, people had obtained water from ordinary wells along streets and in their backyards. The new water system, which supplied piped water directly to Denver citizens, also enabled the city to have a fire hydrant and hose system. The James Archer Hose Company Number no. 2, named in honor of Colonel Archer, was organized on April 9, 1872. 
It was the second volunteer fire company organized in Denver. The first was a hook and ladder company. The James Archer Hose Company No. 2 disbanded in April 1881. Denver's second hose company, James Archer Hose Company No. 4, was organized a month later and stayed in service until spring 1884. Colonel Archer married his second wife in Pennsylvania in 1871. The couple had three children, John, Claire, and a baby who was two when Archer died. Archer started construction of his beautiful home at 1307 Welton, during the harsh winter of 1876 to 77. 25 grateful stonecutters were employed to build the residence. When they completed the work in May, Colonel Archer supplied a lunch for the workers and their friends as a thank you for their excellent work under difficult circumstances. The house was torn down in 1925 and replaced with the Denver Chamber of Commerce building, which has since been replaced with the Colorado Convention Center. Archer was a director of the Denver Club during the first year of its organization in 1880. He died at the Hot Springs at Wagon Wheel Gap on August 26, 1882, at the age of 58. He was survived by his wife and eight children. I'm kind of sad the house is not there anymore. I know. I've been to the Colorado Convention Center. It's a great place for conventions, but it's kind of sad to think there's a giant blue bear standing where his... Yeah. Probably very gorgeous house once was. <laughs> yes. Uh, we only have time for one more Ordinary Extraordinary story today, but I promise we will be sharing many more of the others in later episodes. Our final story is a tragic one. It is a story of Mabel Brown. He was also taken from the Riverside Cemetery tour book. Nine years after Lena Tapper, Marie Kontasot, and Kiku Amaya were strangled in their homes on Market Street in the red light district. Mabel Brown was found strangled in her home at 1931 Market Street. An autopsy found that death was caused by drowning rather than strangulation. After a quart and a half of water was found in her lungs. Two explanations were given for how the water got into her lungs. Either Brown's face was held under water or water was poured down her throat in an attempt to revive her. Mabel's death received a great deal of coverage in the Rocky Mountain News, the Denver Republican, and the Denver Post. The story of her life has been pieced together from those newspaper articles. She was born in Chicago and has celebrated her 20th birthday the day before her death. One account states that she was raised by a minister's family in Fort Morgan, Colorado, where she was well-educated, and moved in the best social circles. After coming to Denver, she attended North Denver High School before working in a candy store on 16th Street. The article went on to say she was an attractive, well-dressed young woman who attracted a lot of attention, which led to her downfall. Wealthy Denver clubmen enticed her into their social circle where she enjoyed the pleasures of life. After a time, they grew tired of her company and abandoned her. Mabel had enjoyed the good life and wanted to, it to continue. And then she went into prostitution. The other newspaper articles, so we're not exactly sure which one of these accounts is true. The other newspaper articles claimed she grew up in a home in North Denver with her parents and a younger brother who was 15 when she died. She was bright and cheerful, even though her life at home was unhappy. After completing her education at Edison School, 
Mabel worked for a time as a domestic. It was surmised that her environment led to her downfall into prostitution. Her father, William Brown, was a saloon keeper who owned several saloons in Denver over the years. After Denver police requested that he leave town, he moved to Chicago, where it is said he died a year or two before Mabel's death. However, one account said that a friend claimed he was still alive. So we don't know. <laughs> Mabel's mother died in Denver before her father moved to Chicago. At the time of her death, her brother was living in Chicago. Her uncle, John W. Stone, was living in Denver. Her aunt, Mrs. Elizabeth Hansen, was living in Chicago. And her grandfather was living in McFarland, Wisconsin. Mabel was the mistress of Samuel Holzwig before he went to Los Angeles in December of 1902. In January of 1903, Mabel sent him a letter saying she had found someone else. He hurried home, but to no avail. Mabel's new lover was Harry Chalice, a bartender at Bob Warner's Saloon. It was reported that the couple was to have married on July 5th, the day of Mabel's death, but that Harry postponed the wedding until fall. Apparently, this upset Mabel because she wanted to marry Harry and stop working as a prostitute. The police considered Hoswig and Chalice suspects in her murder. Hoswig had a solid alibi, and the evidence against Harry was circumstantial. So neither man was charged with her death. There was speculation about other possible suspects, but the crime was never solved. Poor Mabel. I know. And it's, yeah, the, the information on her life seems to be very scattered. And it yeah. almost feels like the different newspapers decided to make up different backgrounds for her, depending on who is doing the reporting. So probably there's very probably, true. yeah, there's probably a lot more to Mrs. Mabel or Ms. Mabel Brown than we will ever know, because it doesn't sound like there was a whole lot of fact for anybody to go on yeah. in this case. Anything to sell newspapers. Right. <laughs> We are so pleased that you joined us once again for another episode of the Ordinary Extraordinary Cemetery, and we truly hope you have enjoyed visiting Denver's Riverside Cemetery. Thank you to those who have reached out over social media or by email with your compliments and ideas. I promise I am working to reply to each and every one of you. So if you haven't heard back from me, please don't despair. I promise you will. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Ordinary Extraordinary Cemetery and on Twitter at Ord extra sim. If you would like to write to us with additional information on cemeteries, or if you have questions you would like answered, you can email us at ordinaryextraordinarycemetery at gmail.com. And if it's not too much trouble, we would love it if you would leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, or on our website, theordinaryextraordinarycemetery.com. You will also find the resources we use to research this episode in the show notes on the website. We hope that you have a wonderful rest of your week. Thanks again for listening until we meet again.